You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Amen. Okay, Luke 6, 37 and 38. Um, let me read the, these first two verses. They will not be unfamiliar to us. Jesus says this in continuing his sermon, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, as I said earlier, these are some of the most misunderstood and ultimately misapplied verses in the Bible. Today, they serve as the Bill of Rights of much of our American religion. And I say American religion because I believe that American religion is distinctly different from Christianity, from discipleship unto Jesus. And so I believe that this is a foundational principle of our American religion. Judge not. Judge not. And that's evident by the fact that everyone that walked in here this morning, whether you knew Jesus or not, whether you knew that there was a thing called a Bible or not, whether you knew that it was divided into two testaments, old and new, whether you knew a single character from that Bible this morning, you did know those words. You did know those words. And here's what's funny about that. American culture is increasingly reluctant to use biblical terms or words in any arena. But let them feel the slightest disapproval. And we're not only willing to use biblical terms, we'll get straight up King James Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Americans love this verse because judging someone else is thought to be the most heinous of crimes. In fact, many of us are so comfortable with these words and so confident that we understand their meaning that we'd probably be content to just end our time together here, right? Straight to communion, pastor. However, I'm going to ask that you indulge me for the next few minutes so that we don't simply abide by a cultural interpretation of these words that twists what Jesus means here. Make no mistake, the stakes here are high. If we get this right, we get life and we give life. If we get this right, we get grace and we give grace. In fact, maybe, just maybe, Christian moral clarity will shine for the jewel that it is without the dirt of judgmentalism covering its beauty. Again, at first evidence, this text is cut and dry. However, if we take this isolated verse 
He's isolated two verses. And set them within the larger context of the whole Bible, all of the Scriptures, that clearly call for Christians to judge and even at times condemn sin. We have to ask ourselves the question, what is it that Jesus means here? Right, I'm not crazy. Jesus in the same sermon, in fact, the very next set of verses, which we'll talk about next week, so I'm not going to steal anyone's thunder, but in the next set of verses, Jesus tells us to judge a tree by its fruit. Later on in the Bible, 1 Corinthians, we were there not too long ago. Some of us have PTSD, so I you know, shudder to kind of bring it back up. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right? What does Paul say? He says, do you not know that the saints... The people of God will judge the world. Right, so again, so it's not as clear-cut as we think it is. It's not as simple as we think it is. It's not as simple as our culture has made it out to be. So we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus or is this word that we believe to be holy and comprehensively from God, is it speaking paradoxically? I don't think so. And let me explain why. I think what we clearly see here, and I'll give us evidence to support my thesis. I think what Jesus is doing here is he is calling his followers simultaneously to exercise judgment without becoming judgmental. I'm going to say it again. I think Jesus is calling his followers here to exercise judgment without becoming judgmental. As followers, brothers and sisters, as followers of a perfectly moral Jesus and subjects of an utterly holy God, we are to absolutely have a highly cultivated sense of right and wrong and to make subtle moral judgments. That's abundantly clear in light of who God is and in light of what He's told us in His Word. Christ's exhortation in this passage do not judge, contains no suggestion that we are now to become morally ambiguous, that we are now to become morally flippant in any way, shape, or form. But what Jesus is disallowing is a judgmental, a condemning disposition a general attitude, a first response, a status quo where we are first to go to judgment, to making judgment, to condemning, to making condemnation. Now for some of us, that's like, okay, well, like where do you draw that line, right? Right? Because we could all enter into maybe the same situation and end up on either side of that room, right? Well, let's allow Jesus himself 
to give us some clarity. Because again, like I said earlier, Jesus is the embodiment of the truth that he speaks. He actually walks in the way that he talks. And so if you will, just turn over one gospel account to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, starting in verse 2, let's observe Jesus having heard from him now. It says this in verse 2, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say, Jesus? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. We love this story, don't we? What just happened? This woman who is caught in a moral wrong. An unambiguous moral wrong, right? I mean, these, these people that are surrounding this woman, they aren't, they aren't crazy, right? Jesus himself teaches the Scriptures, and this is what the Scriptures say, that this is a moral wrong that she has committed, and that there is a just punishment according to the law for that moral wrong. And so she's brought forth, she's brought before Jesus to essentially confirm this, this judgment that they've made. And here's what's, what's funny about the whole situation in general is Jesus, right, being who we now know him to be, God in the flesh, in that moment, being a perfect man and holy God in one person has the right at that moment to be the most morally offended in the crowd. In fact, I would argue that he is the most morally offended in the crowd. Yet, when given the opportunity, he turns the crowd on itself. What does he say, right? Again, words that are not unfamiliar to us. If anyone hasn't sinned, let him cast the first stone. We love that line, don't we? It's just like, it's a, it's, it's a knife in the gut that Jesus just sort of slowly turns. And it tells us that he just kind of goes back to drawing in the sand. 
and you hear the sound of rocks drop, and it tells us that the older, the more mature, right, those people that have known themselves longer, <laughs> leave first. And they all ultimately recognize that they're not without sin, and so they can't cast the first stone. And we love Jesus' words that follow that up, right? When, when he asked the woman, is, is there nobody here to judge you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Love that. For good reason, right? But we rarely finish the verse. Right? What are those final eight words that we just read? He says this, Go, and from now on, sin no more. And so we see both elements, don't we? Jesus isn't just saying, I don't condemn you, go live your life the way you want. No holds barred, because no one can judge you. No, no, no. Jesus makes a judgment, doesn't he? He calls what she has done sin. He says that it is morally repugnant, it is morally offensive, adultery is bad. And yet at the same time, he refuses in that moment to be judgmental, he refuses to be vindictive, to be condemning. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so we see this balance lived out in Jesus, don't we? Christians, followers of Jesus, are absolutely to stand clearly on the moral principles that God has given us in His Word, and at the same time, we are not to wield them like stones to hurl at those who do not live accordingly. Jesus does this time and time again throughout His ministry. This is just one example. And what's crazy about it is that, again, we, we now know who Jesus is, right? There might have been some confusion here and there, or maybe some doubt, or at least you know, something along those lines, some questioning. We now know, according to God's Word, who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He's God in the flesh, pre-existent before all creation. He is over all, in all, through all, right? That's what Colossians tells us. He is supreme. Though he was and is the judge of the universe, he never exposed other sins without also offering mercy. He never delighted in pointing to people's failings. He did at times pronounce judgment. He condemned people. He refused to repent. But there was never a hint of the judgmentalism that he is in Luke 6 urging us to, like him, lay aside. Like Jesus, we are called to make judgments without becoming judgmental. It is action versus disposition. So what does this look like on the ground level? I think we've got a good, good example in Jesus. But how do we actually walk in His footsteps as humans, right? We don't have the whole God element. Uh, you know. I think... Jesus gives us clear direction in the remainder of our portion of Luke 6 when he says this. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that it is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's. Like so much of this sermon up to this point, Jesus is giving in, in this chapter, um, it comes down to lowliness. It comes down to humility. It comes down to a willingness to expose ourselves to our own flaws, to our own moral failure, to our own moral inability, to our own sinfulness, to our own brokenness. To, the own, to our own instances of harming others by the way that we live, by the way that we speak, by the way that we act. It comes down to an awareness of our spiritual poverty, as Cole said last week. Jesus tells us that the path to escaping judgmentalism is when we turn our judging eyes in on ourselves. When we soberly assess our lives, we'll come to realize that our need for Jesus only grows. In fact, here's what's kind of weird about following Jesus. I don't know, I don't think we get told this a lot at the beginning. But the more you know Jesus, like the more you really know Him, the more you read His Word, the more you study His teaching, the more you understand His, His righteousness, right? His moral compass, the more you understand Him and all of those things that surround Him, the more you recognize the depth of your betrayal, the more you recognize how wicked you really are the more you are given eyes to see how black your heart truly is. The more you know Jesus, the more hyper-aware you become of your sin. And what Jesus is saying is that if that is true, if that is true of us, then that doesn't jive with this idea that generally church folk are very judgmental. It does not make sense for someone who has experienced their own darkness to turn around and judge it in another. And so where's, where's the disconnect, right? Why is it that historically, church folk, in our country in particular, have this sort of reputation for judgmentalism? If the deeper we know Jesus, if the more we know Jesus, if the more we study about Jesus, if the, mo if, the, if the more we allow Him to examine us, we become more and more aware of our sin, why is it that we would increasingly become judgmental? Those, there's a disconnect there. That's what Jesus is, is saying here. There's a disconnect between those two realities for us, brothers and sisters. So where is it? Well, I think the answer is in the text. 
our logs are bigger than we think. Let me tell you a story. It's, uh, it's from the Old Testament, that scary part of the Bible. Um, in the Old Testament, there's a character. Um, his name is David, and David's known as a man after God's own heart. God chooses him to be king over all of his people. He's the guy that defeats Goliath. You've probably heard that story. Well, King David, man after God's own heart, uh, at one point in his life had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. And as if that weren't bad enough, Bathsheba was also married. So he had an affair with the wife of another man by the name of Uriah. Uh, One of David's contemporaries uh, was a man by the name of Nathan. And Nathan was a prophet. So um, if that word is weird to you. Uh, prophets in the Bible are, are men who speak on behalf of God to God's people. So that's, that's who Nathan is. He's someone who speaks on behalf of God to God's people. So Nathan was a prophet during David's time as king, and Nathan comes to visit David after this incident with Bathsheba. And he tells David a story. He tells David a story about a rich man, a rich man who took a poor man's beloved pet sheep and slaughtered it to feed his guests. Horrified, horrified David is, right? In that moment, his spirit bubbles up into anger and he responds to this story with these words. He says, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. At this point, all of us are on board, right? We're like, yeah, get him. But here's the twist in the story. After David is done ranting about the injustice of this action, Nathan looks at him and he says, You are the man. You are the man. It is you. And the words that you are speaking in your desire for justice, in judging this moral wrong, in judging this situation, are in fact words that not only can, but should be used of you, David. You see, David, though guilty of a far greater sin, was blind to his own condition, even while he was enraged by the same sin in another. See, I don't think we're so different from David. I think if we're honest this morning, what this scripture is telling us, brothers and sisters, is that we are the man. We are the woman who all too eagerly with vindictive anger and fury 
recount, replay the sins of other people that we ourselves have walked in, perhaps even to a far greater degree. We focus on specs to avoid logs. We enlarge specs to relativize our logs. Oh, I think that's bigger than, than it looks like. That's a bigger deal than it looks like. Right? Over here. Brothers and sisters, I, I believe that we become judgmental people because we imagine that we will lessen our guilt by judging our sins in others. That's why Jesus ultimately calls us to turn our eyes inward. Right? So what's, what's ultimately sort of the secret in all of this? If we know what Jesus calls us to, if we know that we're unable, and if we know that by nature we, we, we blind ourselves, like what, what, if we know it, in, in, for some reasons why we do that, which is like to sort of lend ourselves some comfort to, to sort of bring the ground level again. You know, if I, if I sort of condemn this guy enough, it makes me look better and kind of, if we can bring this guy down a little bit, we can just kind of, you know, kind of all live in this same like sea of shame that is uh, somewhat placated by um, a punctured life vest <laughs> that is our own judgment of other people. Listen, everything we do, we do to find some sort of comfort that we think it will give us, right? And so the same is true of cultivating a, a spirit of judgmentalism. In judging others and ignoring our own judgment-worthy behavior, we're hoping to find mercy for ourselves. We're trying to assuage our conscience, trying to justify ourselves. And the good news for us this morning, brothers and sisters, is that in Jesus, we've already been shown mercy. So we can let Jesus judge us. We can. Like we can let Jesus make moral assessments about our lives. We can let him speak into how we live wrongly. We can let him say those things knowing that he is not judgmental to us but is rather merciful. That he is graciously, out of his sheer kindness, through the grace and the mercy of Jesus, given us righteousness. So here's the difference between Jesus and us. Here's the difference between Jesus and our culture. When we walk into a room like this, and Jesus' word, words clearly accuse us, they clearly show us that we're in the wrong, they clearly show us that we're broken and that we're of our own power helpless. Jesus doesn't ask, how could you? He just asks, would you come to me? I, I, I know, I know, I know. Yes, broken, sinful. It's bad, it's a bad situation. Would you come to me? Would you, would you just come to me? 
What would it look like if we, as disciples of Jesus, went into a world that screams, how could you, over and over and over again? And instead of joining the chorus, asked, would you just come to him? Would you, would you just come find mercy? Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. It's broken. It's broken. I know. I know. Would you, would you just come and find mercy? Listen, we'll be much less tempted, Jesus says, to scream, how could you? When we see clearly the many ways that we could say the same to ourselves. And listen, not, not all of us are, are, are so blind, right? Confession, that's me. That's me. But I, I think there's also some people in this room that, that are, might experience this a little bit differently. I am, I am quick to ignore my faults. I am quick to see the faults of others. Make no mistake, this sermon is <laughs> just as much for me, if not mostly, since half of you might be asleep. But listen, there's some of us in the room that can't stop saying to ourselves, how could you? You can't stop looking in the mirror and hating what you see. You can't stop thinking to yourself, I know Jesus is merciful, but how could he love me? The good news this morning, brothers and sisters, is not only that there's a pathway forward, there's a way to make moral judgments, to say what is true and right and good without becoming a jerk. It's also true that God says right and true and good things about us while also extending us mercy. Jesus' mercy is so sweet, even this morning, in just a few moments, in spite of all the how could you's, no matter who they came from, whether from outside of you, somebody else screaming how could you at you, or whether you inside of yourself screaming how could you at yourself, no matter how many of those there are this week, or the next week, Jesus is still going to invite us to his table. Jesus is still going to invite us to come and share a meal with him. Jesus is still going to invite us to come, taste, and see that he's good this morning. And you know what? Then he's going to send us on our way from this place not on our own, but with the Holy Spirit to help us go and sin no more. And so this is why we take communion every week. In it, we are reminded that though Jesus does make judgments about our lives, the Bible does accuse us. The Bible does show us where we are wrong. It does illuminate for us the dark places of our hearts and our moral condition clearly and sometimes forcefully 
it is never given without also an invitation to rest. In the accomplished work of Jesus, in his broken body and his shed blood for us. So let's all come and receive that mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, grateful to be gathered together. Pray, Lord, that you would sustain us with your grace. Pray, Father, that as you open our eyes to our sinfulness, Lord, that that would make us all the more humble, all the more reticent. Lord, to jump into our culture of judgmentalism. Help us to toe that line, God. It's so fine. It's so thin. It's so easy to fall over into sinfulness and selfishness in our judgmentalism. It's also easy to fall over into unloving moral compromise. Unloving lack of truth. Help us to walk like Jesus, full of both, full of grace, full of truth, for your glory in the world and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' good name.